Well, welcome to episode 61 of uh, The Professor and the Hack. I'm the Hack, Hugh Rimmonson, and with us as always is uh, the Professor, Peter Van Onselen. G'day, Hugh. Political editor for Network 10. G'day, PVO. And, you know, there's a lot of numbers around. We work in numbers, I suppose. We are numbers men in our own lights. <laughs> but the, um, the 500,000 people now dead, known mm. dead from uh, the coronavirus is a little reminder uh, that we are in the middle of something um, uh, dark and historic. Uh, and, of course, we've got the political and the real implications of that with that you know, spike, what do you call it, not a second wave. They're not calling it a second wave, the stuff going on in Victoria uh, at the moment. Uh, where's, this, where's this leaving us, Peter? Well, I mean, I'm glad you said that we're in the middle of it because I, I think that's almost a best-case scenario when you think about it globally. When you think about it domestically, we're a little bit insulated from this pandemic, which is still sweeping the globe because we've gone very close to eradicating it here, notwithstanding the problems in Victoria. And, and it's now more the economic than the health fallout from it that seems to be in play in this country. But when you go globally, it's only really just starting to take hold in a lot of parts of the world and really ramping up in places like Brazil, for example. And the United States is, is going through, it wouldn't even be deemed a second wave because it's an ongoing uh, capitulation in parts of the country, particularly somewhere like Texas. So half a million people, I think, is the beginning. And it's not even necessarily the end of the beginning, depending on how long a vaccine does or doesn't take from here. So it's easy to lose that perspective. It's a little bit like, actually, and I didn't think it would be like this, but it's a little bit like the loss of perspective that Australia had uh, internationally around the GFC. Uh, that was purely an economic crisis. And we didn't quite understand or, or get impacted by the economic effects of it the way that other parts of the world did. This is a health crisis where we're not being impacted by the health effects as a lot of other parts of the world are. Touch wood, it stays that way. But the difference, of course, is that the economic impacts, even if, like Australia, you can avoid a lot of the health fallout, are still absolutely profound. And we, we see all the, the evidence of that, you know, with what's happened uh, to Virgin, to Qantas, uh, you know, the unemployment numbers and, of course, the ongoing debt situation in the context of trying to save as many jobs as possible. So that leaves difficult choices for the government. And we saw um, what you can only call as hints uh, going on between the Prime Minister and Alan Joyce, that they had had very good discussions about uh, JobKeeper uh, being extended in some form for the aviation industry. Nothing announced as yet. So, um you know, wait till you wait till you can, you know, feel the weight and the width of it. But uh, what's the government going to do? Well, it's a good question. I certainly get the impression when it comes to the aviation industry, there will be a, a special package. I find it really interesting though that they don't want to tell us anything about this job keeper review, which they now have in their hot little hands until the end of the month, and including therefore after the Saturday by election coming up at the beginning of July for Eden Monero. I would have thought strategically there's some value in them, at least trying to dribble out some of the better points of that ahead of the by-election. But they're just going to be attacked between now and I think it's 23 July that they've said they'll release whatever the update is to what happens to JobKeeper after September. They will be attacked on a near daily basis in some quarters of the media for not giving us the information that we know they have. Now, in fairness, they've got to consider what has been given to them in terms of what their decision-making is out of what's been proposed. But it is weird to me that they're sitting on it. Can I ask you this, Hugh? In the Sunday papers, the Sunday News Limited papers, there was a splash about changes to Newstart 
when Job Seeker comes off, which suggested, it was Annika Smethurst that, that wrote it, I believe, it suggested that there would be a $75 increase each week to New Start. Now, you know, people have long been calling for a $40-plus a week increase to New Start. This was, it looked to me, and I don't mean this in any way, shape or form as an attack on Annika, but it looked like it was a drip-fed piece of information rather than her, if you like, breaking ranks. It looked, for all intents and purposes, like it was given to her. However, the Minister for Social Services certainly wasn't in on it, if I'm right about that, because the following day she came out and said it's absolute rubbish. Uh, she knows nothing about it. Now, there's one of two things at play here. Either it's absolute rubbish and the Minister knows nothing about it, or this has been given to Annika Smethurst and the Minister knows nothing about it, but other forces in the government do, whether it's out of the Treasurer's office, the Prime Minister's office, or you know, some sort of level of the Expenditure Review Committee, which they, the Social Services Minister doesn't get to be part of. But it is weird that a News Corp Sunday paper would be so authoritative in its splash with this, yet then on the same day, hours later, the responsible minister comes out and doesn't just try to hose it down, but just says it's complete garbage. It certainly leaves it awkward because if the number is right, then uh, it means two things. One is that uh, cabinet processes have broken down when the responsible minister is not part of a decision like that, that is so central mm. to her own portfolio. Uh, the other thing being is that it's deeply embarrassing to her. So one would presume that now they're going to have to come up with a number like it's $77 or it's $72 <laughs> or something else just to cover her blushes for denying that it would. doesn't that it, get her it through it though, does it? <laughs> <laughs> no, look, it's, it is interesting because there's two things about this that strike me straight away. One is that um, uh, the Prime Minister has plainly tried to say, look, JobKeeper's ending, and then people will be put onto JobSeeker, the old new start. And he says, that's good, because if people have lost their jobs, then JobSeeker is the place you go when you want to be put into connection, be, be connected with people who are, um, you know, you know so, so you can link back in and find the jobs that are available out there. But it comes with two things. One is mutual obligation. Of course, you've got to show that you're looking for work. But it also comes with a means test. Now, JobKeeper is not means tested. Uh, if you're still in connection with your employer, mm -hmm. you will get that $3,000 um, a month. Uh, but when it's means tested, it means that if you've got people who are currently on JobKeeper and hanging on and then get pushed off that onto JobSeeker, a lot of middle-class folk not only get that money dropped right off, and, and, but people who are, say, a little bit older, who've got some assets, uh, they have to spend down those assets before they can get the job seeker. And that's something that's been a bit overlooked, perhaps not talked about enough, is that, in fact, when JobKeeper ends for some people, there is nothing else there until people have paid off other assets that are, that are, their assets that are in there. And the other thing, if I may, just about the JobKeeper extension will it go to aviation or not now the whole argument the government gave for not giving a cash bailout to virgin when virgin went to them and said look we're going to go bust unless we can get some help and the government didn't give them a thing and the argument that was made was that well you know if we start giving it to virgin then there are a whole bunch of other uh, big firms around the country in all kinds of other sectors of, of the community uh, that are also struggling as a result of the pandemic. And they'll all be coming to the government looking for billions of dollars in bailouts. So we're not going to give it to Virgin. So given that you've made that statement regarding bailouts, how can the government then work a system as it seems to be inclined to do of giving a, an extension in some form of job keeper to the aviation industry 
unless you're going to then extend it to everywhere else in the tourism industry, uh, into other areas which have been hard hit, heaven forbid, the arts or, or you know, or, or, or university mm. or extending some sort of extra support. How do you make the political argument? Well, look, it's, it's difficult at one level because the government is, is picking favourites, if you will, if you're being unkind. Um, but I, I'm not uncomfortable about it as long as it's a process that we can all see and transparently have explained to us um, just simply because, you know, there are sectors that are more damaged than others, but it depends how wide they, they cast their net, doesn't it? I mean, clearly the aviation industry is suffering more than a lot. So this the tourism industry, as you mentioned, you know, a lot of arts and entertainment sectors are struggling as well. So there will inevitably be sectors that will argue the toss that they are suffering as much or close to as much as sectors that do do receive some sort of version of an extension of JobKeeper. And that will become politically awkward for the government. But it's, it's, it's an unavoidable reality, I think, because they do need to try to scale it down for some industries. But the, the way that they do it is going to be complex and subjective. And that's the problem, right? The subjective nature of it will be a problem for them politically, potentially. And given that we know from sports rorts that this government, as other governments in the past, but this government is particularly unembarrassed about the process of making decisions about taxpayer money with a purely electoral view to it, uh, then when you look at the tourism jobs, for example, along that Queensland coast, which is suffering a lot, you've got Virgin, which is based in uh, in Brisbane and looks as if it will stay based in Brisbane under the Bain capital recapitalization of Virgin, then the temptation surely would be enormous uh, to protect those all important Queensland seats for Scott Morrison to find something for tourism uh, in those areas that, that will extend it beyond the, you know, the cutoff time for JobKeeper. And, and the other problem that he's still got, of course, is the ongoing difficulty between what the states do versus what his position is as the Commonwealth as to what can happen next, because their decisions around borders and around, you know, lockdowns, particularly in the case of Victoria with what happens with this not second wave, uh, these are all impacting decisions on Commonwealth decision-making around the economy. So it, look, it's, it, it's complex. It's going to get a lot more complex from here, but probably more importantly, it's going to get a lot more contested from here. So far, there's just been a bit of a blanket view that the government has done well, because it's splashed the cash and we've avoided the worst of the pandemic. It gets more complicated than that simplistic, albeit accurate, that simplistic view of the world uh, as the nitty gritty starts to really kick in in the aftermath of September. And that goes to another interesting point, actually, that you make there. That you look at news poll again, and of course the polls at this stage, two years away from election, they're completely meaningless. They don't mean anything. Um, but they are, they are interesting on this point, and that is that Scott Morrison's approval rating remains absurdly high. What well, was absurdly high? Good on him. Very high, 68% on the latest news poll. Um, he's preferred prime minister by a monstrous margin, more than twice uh, the, the figures that Albo's getting at 58 to 26 Um but if you look at the two-party preferred, for the sake of these polls, it still shows it more or less neck and neck, 51% for the coalition, 49% for Labour. So we do have a strange setting at the moment where all the positive uh, responses that the public are making towards the way in which these things are being handled are essentially sticking uh, like fluff, if you like, happy little bits of fluff to Scott Morrison. And none of it is sticking to his government. 
<laughs> there seems to be this complete split between Morrison good coalition there, nah, you know, still no better than Labour. And, you know, it's in the margin of error. How, how, do, you, how do you account for that? Well, I, I think some of it is what happens to leaders in a crisis, that the nation wants to have a, a belief in their ability to succeed. And we're seeing that manifest in the polls. But the government, it's easy to forget, is still a third term government that has cycled through two prime ministers, had periods of destabilisation, had controversies like sports, rorts, robo-debt, you name it. So they're not exactly being held up in lights as a government. And I think that's reflected in the polls as well. Um, but, you know, equally, having said all of that, you know, the, the margin of error in the polls suggests that a 49-51 two-party preferred could actually be a little bit wider than that. Uh, and we know that federal elections are always tight anyway. So what I think a lot of people have woken up to, particularly with the way that he managed to come back from the polls at the last election, is that A, uh, polls can be volatile because of margin of error problems, increasingly so these days, I think, where it's robo-calls rather than person-to-person um, -person telephone calls. And with all the difficulties of the of the way that the data analytics work around landlines not being as prevalent as mobiles now and all the rest of it. So polls aren't what they once were, even in a compulsory voting system like ours. But notwithstanding that, you know, countries want to coalesce around a leader who is doing well in a time of crisis as opposed to perhaps one that's doing not so well like Donald Trump. Uh, and we're seeing that play out in the polls for Scott Morrison. So he's stratospheric now. I mean, the, the net satisfaction rating, I think, is the really interesting one. He's at positive 41 net satisfaction rating. That is the number of people satisfied with his performance minus those who are dissatisfied. He's at positive 41. Towards the end of February, just after the bushfires, he was at negative 20. A 61-point turnaround in his net satisfaction rating, to my top of the head knowledge, is absolutely unprecedented in this country in that sort of space of time. And if you're Albo sitting here looking at these polls, you could look at the uh, two-party preferred and say, gee, we're still in shooting distance. And you look at the rest of it, you think, oh, am I the man for the job? What, what's, what well, would you be, be very... doing if you're sitting in his inner circle saying, Albo, uh, it's time to go, or Albo, don't worry? Oh, look, I think he'd be most grateful for the very leadership um, change of rules in the Labor Party that protected them from being able to get rid of Bill Shorten when he was always personally unpopular, but they were doing well on the two-party vote. So suddenly Albo, who was uh, a net um, you know, loser out of that leadership structure, is now a net beneficiary of it now that he's the leader with his own personal ratings being nowhere near Scott Morrison's. He'll take heart from the closeness of the two-party result. He'll take heart from the fact that Labor's primary vote is sitting on 35. It's not great, um, but it's not low 30s like it was at different points in time uh, for other Labor leaders when they were guaranteed that they were heading towards defeat. But it's not, it's not good for him personally because of the backbiting that it can create and the loss of authority uh, that low personal numbers create for an opposition leader is, is probably the most damaging thing. Whether it plays out or not specifically at an election is another matter. What it does is it, it hobbles or nobbles their ability to be able to actually lead the party they, the way they want to. So as a leader, they almost become a passenger to the political circumstances or to the whims of the backbench. Now, China or China, as uh, Donald Trump calls it. We're going to talk about that plenty going on in our relationship with China and the internal workings. We'll take a quick break, Peter. What do Tom Jones, Borat and Eddie Munster all have in common? You can hear them all on the Starstruck with Angela Bishop podcast. I'll give you all the behind-the-scenes goss on what went on with some of my most fascinating interviews over the years. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. 
Welcome back. This is The Professor and the Hack, episode 61 with PVO, Peter Van Onsel and The Professor, and I'm Hugh Rimmons, and I am, without question, the hack. Um, China, uh, it's, it's a fraught relationship, and it seems by the minute getting more fraught, Peter. Uh, we've got AFP ASIO raids on a New South Wales Upper House MP. We've also got China now claiming that uh, Australia has spies uh, all the way through um, China. Uh, what, what's your take on where the relationship is just in a broad sense, what do you think is going on with our relationship with China at the moment? Oh, look, I, I think it's clearly going through a low period. <laughs> There's little doubt about that, but, but that's sort of in line with a lot of the global community towards China at the moment, particularly in the wake of the pandemic as well. But it particularly impacts on us because of our regional positioning, our deep alliance relationship with the U S and of course, more than anything, uh, our trade dependence and interdependence with China uh, when it comes to what we import and what we and what we export to them. So all of that coupled with just, you know, the, some, some of the shenanigans going on in the New South Wales Upper House and, and some of the, the back and forth trading of barbs that have been occurring in the federal parliament, uh, it's had a very tense moment, our relationship with China. And as China continues to rise, we're seeing them be prepared to be more bullish in their response to perceived slights or whatever it might be. So uh, all of that is, is, is playing out. And a lot of people are actually arguing that we're already in the midst of what constitutes modern warfare via cyber warfare, uh, that we're well and truly in the midst of that. And, and some people would argue that there's a bit of a sleepwalk mentality amongst some security experts even uh, when it comes to failing to recognise that that is the modern equivalent uh, of the Cold War. Well, it's interesting that China comes out and claims that uh, that uh, little Australia is spying on them uh, as Australian agents, AFP and ASIO agents, uh, go raiding politicians. And the prime minister says the threat of foreign interference, he doesn't mention China by name, uh, the threat of foreign interference is real and that Australia isn't going to cop it. So we saw a lot of publicity about this raid on the on properties associated with uh, Shaukat Mosselmane, who's a, uh, a Labour uh, upper house MP in New South Wales. There seems to be particular interest in a member of his staff who is uh, of Chinese background. And the suggestion being that there is some sort of link back to um, these entities that the Chinese Communist Party have set up um, that seem to have bland names, uh, but, uh, you know, to promote China's interests overseas. But in fact, uh, our agents of influence, the claim is, there are no more than claims. But once you start unpeeling the issue, of uh, Chinese influence, it's very hard, isn't it? Or it's going to be very hard for the prime minister and, uh, and, and this government to claim that this is a Labour Party issue. Well, that's true. Uh, it's, it's more than a Labour Party issue. Well, I think it's a bigger problem in the Labour Party, don't you? I mean, do you, do you think that the, the, the relations with China is a bigger issue for Labour than it is for the coalition? No, well, I don't know. I mean, there's, I mean, I mean, have a look at it. There was uh, obviously there have been questions in the past uh, over the behaviour of uh, Stuart Robert, who's who's now the guy um, running, uh, you know, an important as far as the public's concerned, an important portfolio in cabinet, the closest personal um, political figure to uh, Scott Morrison in the current government. So he's he's got issues in the past. At Andrew Robb, the former trade mm, minister, true. Who, who who oversaw the uh, the 99-year lease 
to uh, Chinese interests of the port of Darwin, something which uh, caused a rebuke from the then president of the United States, Barack Obama, saying that he wasn't told about it and he feels he should have been, given that there are U.S. Marines uh, who are there in in Darwin. And and then Andrew Robb leaves office. What do you know? He takes a job that pays $880,000 a year, uh, hired by the guy who runs the company that took the lease. And so these sorts of things are uh, certainly matters that have raised uh, some concerns, and also this guy uh, Yi Cheng, I think his name is, who, who was the the billionaire that uh, hired Andrew Robb, uh, having close links to the Chinese Communist Party. There were questions about Gladys Yu uh, uh, in uh, Chisholm in Victoria, and the fact that in previous uh, campaigns for um, for seats in the Victorian state arena, uh, that she uh, took donations from communist party linked entities uh which after the event she she you know she she fessed up to that no suggestions um certainly no proof of anything like that going on into the into the actual election that got her putting put her into the federal parliament but um there are problems there's obviously the uh the sam bastiari issues that ended his career uh in the labor party there are problems for all because it seems to me that this is the way in which China works relentlessly uh, with purpose, uh, working quietly and patiently and seeking to filter into the political substructure. And these aren't Chinese people. This is the Chinese government. And there's a real distinction to be made there. And I think there's a problem once, once we start getting into this and talking about the threat being real, that uh, if we're going to talk about the threat, we really have to, we really have to drill into it because it's been going on for a while. Yeah, look, uh, it certainly has been going on for a while. And, and this is part of the issue, right, is that uh, Australia as a middle power has been, uh, I, I think, what well, the world actually, not just Australia, we've been a little bit complacent about some of the links and the realities of the optics of those links. And this comes back, you, you mentioned Andrew Robb, and there's been plenty of other people uh, who in their post careers have had those links. One of the problems, uh, I think, is that the perception of it is a problem, but we've seen no reality of really finding ways to shut it down in the aftermath. And I'm not sure uh, how much that changes decision-making of MPs writ large in Parliament. I think that's uh, still a, you know, a fairly strong leap. But, uh, you know, with the way that China as an entity is becoming so much more nefarious in the way that it acts, that's what worries me. Uh, well, we did see we did see Sam Dastyari break with Labour Party policy on a matter involving China. This is before his final disgrace, um, and and it was known at that stage that you know subsequently became known that he was by that stage receiving large donations from from China. And of course, there have been these uh, you know brown paper bags of cash that have gone into the Labour Party in New South Wales that essentially, in the end, cost the job of the of the rising young Labour Party state secretary of the Labour Party. So uh, I'm not so sure that we haven't seen it start to influence the way in which politicians operate uh, on the federal uh, sphere. I would, I would make the opposite argument that we have seen it, but what we have seen in these cases is that people have tended to be caught out and, um, and lose skin as a result. So it's, it's definitely not an easy matter for mm. someone with our systems to to be on the take, if you like, from China and somehow or other bend a government uh, to to the will, but uh, but you know the prime minister says the threat is real. ASIO is acting, 
uh, AFP is acting and um, and we have to presume, take them without other evidence, that it is real and, and that it, it is actually an attempt to interfere in our political processes. Well, just on that, with the, the New South Wales Upper House MP, uh, Shokim Mosselman, is that how you pronounce his name? Uh, well, I think it's Shokim Mosselman, yeah. Okay. He, uh, yeah. Do, what, what are your, look, we'll see where this goes. And perhaps by the time some people listen to this, there will be a little bit more information on this than there is now. But I'm actually a little bit disturbed at the swiftness with which everyone is talking about wanting to suspend this guy from Parliament before we've even got charges laid, nor even necessarily know what charges would even follow if they even would. Now, it may well be that there's something that ASIO knows that, you know, in the fullness of time looks very bad and justifies all these sort of decisions. But one of the things that I think is important about us differentiating ourselves from somewhere like China, uh, which is where the accusations are of them trying to seek undue influence. One of the things that matters in Australia is that we don't jump the gun uh, on important things like innocence until proven guilty, or certainly at the very least, you know, showing your cards as to what they have on the cards in relation to um, possible charges or, or accusations. I'm amazed, actually, at the swiftness with which both Labor and the Liberal Party in New South Wales are saying we want him suspended from the Parliament before a bloody charge has even been laid. I, I, well, well that, that I mean, Labor's already me suspended Yeah, Labor's already suspended him from the party. Uh, which, a party's which, a private organisation, though, Hugh. I mean, I agree with you. I still think that's dumping the, jumping the gun, if that's what you're saying. But as a private organisation, they can do what they want. You know, they can kind of suspend him because they don't like the shade of the suits that he wears. They, they can almost get away with anything. No, I accept that up to a point. But the thing is, is that it might be a private organisation, but it's a private organisation uh, that is involved in the political process. And it is True. as a member of that private organization, the Labour Party, that he got put into the upper house. Now, bear in mind that to be elected to the upper house of a state uh, parliament, it's really the party that is being elected, not the individual, for, for the most part. People follow the, uh, the, you know, the voting card, as they do in the Senate. They follow the voting card of the party. So um, it's, it's not like a, a constituency electorate, a lower house electorate, where it, it tends to be down to the person that you, that you vote for, obviously, as well as the party, but the upper house is much more a party-held position. So in suspending him from the party, um, it's really sending a signal out there that uh, we want nothing to do with this bloke. We're steering well clear of this bloke. And that's before, um, it, as you say, charges have been laid. So in terms of process, I was quite surprised at the speed of that. And for the Labour Party, which, of course, has been deeply embarrassed by all the Eddie O'Bead type issues and, and everything, where they hung on to a guy who they knew internally was a crook, um, uh, with all respect to, the, respect to the man who's appealing his convictions as we go. But um, he's, uh, you know, the, the Labour Party had to wear that, is still wearing the consequences of that. And you get the feeling that in New South Wales, they're going to go, yep, OK, cops are involved, they're fine, we'll suspend you from the party. As for the parliament and all the rest of it, it should properly wait until there is at least something oh, going yeah. on. We, we don't know the degree to which he is the primary target, whether it's the, the staffer in his office. Um, you know, has he an unwittingly been played by someone? Is he actively up to his neck in it? Um, all of these sorts of things that people might speculate about or without any proof at the moment. So um, there are process issues, of course. I think you're dead right about all of that. Nevertheless, the bigger question still still exists and that is you know how does china work well we know that they work 
with incredible sophistication. I think one of the greatest mistakes, having lived over there, reported there for years, mm. the, the greatest error the West makes again and again and again, and particularly the ordinary population, is that they, that for some reason, there's this notion out there that the Chinese are stupid or that they're dumb or that they, you know, they don't understand our processes or that they're different. And they're, they're, the Chinese are the most unbelievably sophisticated operators. Um, they get things wrong. They misunderstand things. They overplay their hands. They're overly bellicose sometimes. There's a strong nationalistic streak within China. But the notion that they're not sophisticated and patient uh, would be completely false. Um, and interesting enough, when they talk about these spy Australian spies in China, one of the pieces of evidence is they've produced is a map, someone with a map of Shanghai and a compass. A map of Shanghai and a compass. There's a bit of spy craft for you. Um, <laughs> anyone with a smartphone going to China has a map of Shanghai and a compass. And if that is a threshold that you meet in order to be held up as a spy, the Chinese have shown in the past that they're willing to play the criminal uh, charge game uh, to affect foreign policy purposes and to send signals as they go. Peter Jennings, the executive director of ASPE, who's uh, very watchful on these things, uh, told me a couple of weeks ago, recommended that Australians don't go to China at the moment because of COVID. Not many Australians are going to China, but there are 100,000 Australians in Hong Kong under national security laws just passed, which essentially bring them within the orbit of the Communist Party uh, apparatus of mainland China. And I would say caution, Peter, Peter Jennings advises caution, and that would seem to be a pretty, a pretty appropriate response at the moment. Yeah, look, I must say, I, 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 I've written some harsh things about China, uh, and in the, you know, <laughs> despite the, that micro role in things in the current climate, notwithstanding the pandemic, I, I wouldn't travel through China. Uh, you'd be worried that you just become a pawn in a much bigger game uh, by being in the wrong place at the wrong point in time, and it's just not worth it, frankly. Well, we won't be taking our holidays in China. We hopefully will be back later this week for episode 62 PVO, but then we might take a little bit of a break, see something of our families, go to exotic holidays to, <laughs> well, not, not too far from home by the looks of things. Um, uh, great to talk to you. Thank you for listening again to us through our babblings and uh, we'll see you next time. All the best PVO. See you. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. Speaks latest podcast, 10 News First Person, will bring you amazing stories from all over the country, stories that matter from journalists with passion. I'm Rolda Jacobs, and I'm proud to present these stories to you. You can find 10 News First Person on the 10 Speaks page on 10 Play or wherever you listen to podcasts.